Welcome to the podcast for Refuge City Church. We hope that the message today blesses you and inspires you to be a refuge that embraces others. Well, welcome again. So glad to be here. And uh, I want to give you a word today that honestly is not so much, um, I mean, obviously any word that we have is going to be a challenge to our spirit. But what I believe it's going to be today is a challenge to your thinking, a challenge to um, digging in and actually really paying attention to what the scripture is teaching us because we in our culture are very good at skimming over the surface of things. And we hear things over and over, but a lot of times we don't give them the leverage to actually dig down into our heart. And I want to give you a concept today that you've probably read in scripture, but you might not have ever understood the relevance of it. So I'd like if you would to turn to Psalm 97, if you would. And for those that are joining in the Klamath Basin area, you can actually join us on the Bible app and the outline is there uh, for you to be able to do that. Just go into events and you're going to be able to find Refuge City Church right there. You can use that here in the sanctuary as well, because you can take notes, you can save them, and you can go back and study this for yourself later on. So um, today I want to talk to you on the topic of righteousness and justice. Just look at your neighbor, maybe it's your spouse or your friend, or maybe somebody you've never met and say righteousness and justice. Put your seatbelt on, righteousness and justice. There are pictures throughout God's word that describe his splendor and his character. They follow him from the pages of Genesis to the closing chapters of Revelation. These pictures help form the basis that we have for the magnificence of God. How many would know today he is magnificent? Like we, we don't have enough words in the English language to truly describe how great he is. And we go through the songs that we sing and the words that we pray. And if you're anything like me, you get to a certain place when you're trying to ascribe him praise and you don't even know what word to use next because they all seem so small. He's that magnificent. He's that powerful. And his wisdom from generation to generation is so much bigger than ours. And as a result of that, it's important that we exercise our spirit and we exercise our mind to dig into the places of God's word that will give us a little snapshot, give us a facet of the glory of God that when his splendor turns in a direction that we can see his glory sparkle and we can go, oh wow, oh wow. Did you know that's where worship comes from? That's what the worship means, awe, oh, oh. That's what happens when we worship, oh, wow. And we need to continually position and posture ourselves in a place where our spirit and then even our flesh goes, wow, wow. These pictures help form the basis that we have for understanding the magnificence of God. But however, many times we overlook them as flowery poetry and lofty religiosity. We miss the depth and the beauty of God's attributes And we skim over deep theology that could be incredibly helpful to us in developing the picture of God we need to understand him better, especially in the day we're living in today. There's a lot of voices. There's a lot of distraction. And we need him. We need his voice. I kept coming across today's concepts in my devotional. I've been reading this devotional for about a year now, and it's so deep for me that I can only go through about a page before I just have to put it down and think about it for a while. And it's actually found in Jonathan Kahn's book, um, Book of Mysteries. And it's basically a story that is being told between a teacher and a student. And there's developing these little concepts of the significance in our English language of the Hebraic roots. How many realize that Jesus was Jewish? 
Jesus wasn't a Christian because there wasn't Christians when Jesus was alive on the earth. He was Jewish, and so we actually have our root system in the Hebraic faith. And so we are what the Bible tells us in Romans 14, grafted in. It it uses a picture of an olive tree. And you know that you can graft in, you've heard of this with orange trees or different, maybe an apple tree, and you can put a foreign, a different kind of branch into the trunk of a tree and it will actually graft in and begin to produce fruit. And the Bible teaches us in Romans 14 that you and I, because we believe in Jesus, have been grafted into the story of God that was originally being told through the Hebrew people. And so we are Christ-like, which means that we are actually Hebraic in nature, which means there should always be a respect and an honor for the Hebraic faith. Because we have the revelation of Christ does not mean that the rest of the foundation is gone. It means that it is understood. Okay? And so as I was reading through these studies, I kept coming across this topic, and I've been studying through Hebrews lately, and this kept leaping up in me, and I went, Lord, is this what you want me to speak on? There's some depth here, and I kept feeling, yes, this is what you're supposed to talk about. It's a powerful topic for us to meditate on. The word meditate means that we chew on it. This is kind of a gross picture, but it's like the, it's like the, the bovine, the cattle that go out in the field, and they, they, they take the grass in, they're grazing, and then they go lay underneath the tree in the shade of the day and they chew their cud. That's what it means. It, it means to ruminate. It means to bring back up what you have learned before and to chew on it again so that the nutrition comes into the deeper parts of your life. And I fear that as Christians, many times we have lost the beauty and the art of ruminating, meditating on God's word and on his truth and on his presence because that's where that nutrition is found. Today we're going to tackle a concept of God that has the power to transform your walk with him and understanding of his character. Today has the potential to resonate deeply with you, but you're going to have to track with me and put your spiritual seatbelts on because some of the things might try to skip over the surface and I want you to grab for them, okay? I want you to reach for them and say, God, what does that mean for me? How do I understand that? I believe in you today to receive this word because I believe that God wants to increase a level of maturity in each of us, and he's going to enrich and nourish us as we're determined to grab a hold of it. So Psalm 97, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist says this, the Lord reigns, let the earth be glad. And everyone said, amen, we're glad, the Lord reigns. It says, let the distant shores rejoice. It says, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. So I want to be one of many that would tell you this this morning. Throughout the course of your Christian life, God has always wanted relationship with his people. He's always wanted relationship with you. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in an unhindered relationship because they lived their life without sin. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice to know that you don't have to have a tainted conscience before God? And that's what Adam and Eve enjoyed. And they had this relationship with God. But Adam and Eve fell because of disobedience. There was the lie that came in. They took of the fruit and they ate and they realized that they were separated from God now. They've been removed from the presence of God and from the clean conscience that was their right as a child of God. God then began a story of an intermediary. Someone who would stand between mankind and him and provide righteousness and justice for mankind. And this was signified to Adam and Eve 
in the fact that God provided the skins of an animal and the shedding of that animal's blood in order to stand between God's wrath of, against their sin and humanity who would be the object of that wrath. Understand? And so God provided that skin, that covering, that in-between. Justice and righteousness. He covered their sin. Or said another way, his kingship and his priesthood came and stood so that they could survive. We're going to develop that. These are two words that are used a lot of God in scripture. Have you heard that before? A king and a priest. A king and priest. A king and priest. A king and priest. A king and priest. Can I propose to you today that a king and a priest is actually the fulfillment of his righteousness and his justice. And remember what righteousness and justice is. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. So when God takes up residence on his throne, when he is seated on his throne, righteousness and justice form its foundation. A king administers justice. A priest administers righteousness. I say that again, a king administers justice. He's to rule the land. And a priest administers righteousness. He's the stand between, between God and man. A king, the chief authority over a country or a people. A king is to ensure the standard of authority and the administration of justice over a group of people. The people, it actually says in the Bible, will rejoice when the king is righteous. And we know that to be true in the United States. When righteousness is in office, the people prosper and the people rejoice. When tyranny is in office, everybody moans underneath the weight of oppression and they gripe. And so the king is set by God to administer justice. A priest is a mediator between humans and God. A priest is to stand as an intercessor, someone who provides a bridge of relationship between God and man. Are you still with me? So get this today, only two times, everyone say two times, only twice in the Bible are these offices ever allowed to be given to the same person. Two times. Once before the old covenant and once after the new covenant or after the old covenant. Only to two people in history have these offices been attributed to the same person. Usually you could be one or the other, but never both. God kept them separated for a reason. Okay, king and priest, two different people, except for twice in the Bible, and we're going to dig into that. Throughout the Old Testament, there are pictures of the king and priest being present in the lives and stories of the patriarchs, especially before the Old Covenant is given. So you'll remember there's a story about when Abram was visited by three men, and all of a sudden they actually prophesy that Sarai is going to be with child. And this couple is old. They've never been able to conceive. These three men show up and Abraham recognizes that it is God in the flesh represented in three figureheads. And he has Sarah make them a meal and ask them to stay. And then it's prophesied through them that the seed would begin the seed of faith, which was Isaac. 
Okay, I don't have time to develop that, but that's one of those times. The two visitors to Lot and his family before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, they came to rescue and to pull out Lot from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God's intervention, his justice and his righteousness, his kingship and his priesthood. Are you seeing this, this correlation? Moses saw it in the burning bush. All of a sudden, he comes across in the far side of the desert, a bush that's burning but it's not burning up. And he hears the voice of God from within the flame say, Moses, take the sandals off your feet because the place you stand is holy ground. And he gets down before the Lord God Almighty and he receives the call to bring deliverance to a group of people who have been in slavery for 400 years. Another time is the delivering miracles of Exodus. They walked through the Red Sea. Pastor David did an amazing job of sharing that story. They came to a wall and God brought them to a place where they were brought through. We see the plagues of Egypt. We see them advancing into the promised land. We see the kingship and the priesthood of God himself intervening in the lives of the people. There's one place where we see him described and there's this really wild, obscure, weird character in the Bible that you don't hear a lot about, but he is so prevalent in prophecy that I want to show him to you today. This is the first person who was described as a king and a priest. The king for justice and the priest for righteousness is there to provide God's righteousness and justice at every turn. Sometimes he appeared in signs and wonders. Other times he appeared in physical form to bring continuation to the story of God's ultimate restoration of his people. And one time he did it through a man named Melchizedek. Have you ever heard that name before? Melchizedek. In fact, if you go through the Bible, you read about Melchizedek and he disappears and he's gone. And then in Psalms, he appears and he's gone. And then in the New Testament, you hear reference to him and then he's gone. And we take for granted that he's in the Bible because the Jewish people had an understanding of who Melchizedek was that we don't get privy information to other than a few little token pieces of information. And you say, Pastor Jimmy, why in the world are you telling us about Melchizedek on a Sunday morning message? Because you need to know. Because this is going to transform your understanding of God's kingship and priesthood in your life. And I don't know about you, but I want to say, yeehaw, let's go, because God is going to speak to us through this. So one such encounter was the one that Abram had with the mysterious man Melchizedek, a character in the Bible that has little explanation other than he was king and he was priest. After a vicious battle, Abram had a peace treaty meeting with the king of Sodom, and they met together, and all of a sudden, the king of Salem, Jerusalem, the king of peace, shows up in the camp, and he begins to interact with the king of Sodom and Abram. He was described as both king and priest. He was the Lord's high priest, and he was the king of Salem, which was the pre-Jerusalem. That's where that name derived from. No one knows where he came from, other than he was the king of Jerusalem. And no one knows where he went after. He's never described as dying. He's not part of any of the 12 tribes of Israel. He doesn't have a lineage. He doesn't have a beginning and he doesn't have an end. The scripture makes this clear in Hebrews and we're going to look at it in just a minute. So who do you think that might have been who showed up on the scene in order to start the story of redemption? It could have just been that it was the Messiah pre-Jesus. 
to come and begin the story of redemption. How do we know that the story of redemption was started there? Because what Melchizedek is inciting here is the beginning of the promise, the reconciliation, the kingship, the priesthood, and Sarah is going to give birth to a little boy named Isaac, who is not just because of his lineage, but because of the faith of his parents began the process of redemption that would reveal Jesus at just the right time. I want you to see this in Psalm 110. Will you turn over there with me? Find it in your app if you want to. But Psalm 110, because we see this character and he shows up, he does his thing, and then he's gone. And you go, who in the world was Melchizedek? And how did he become a king and a priest? And how did he get both offices at the same time? And why don't we ever hear about him again? And then we don't hear his name again until we get to Psalm 110. And the psalmist gives us this prophecy. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is a messianic prophecy. What this means is that the, pro- the prophet, the psalmist who is prophesying is declaring that there was one coming who was going to be without lineage, that was going to be without end, that was going to take, he wasn't going to be a part of all of the things that man had made. He was going to be the redeemer that was to come. He was going to be in the line of Melchizedek. In other words, he would come not from the first or the old covenant, but would come from the throne of God without beginning and without end in order to fulfill the kingship and the priesthood hood of God. Yes, all of you guys are going, it's awful early, Pastor Jimmy. Why are you diving into this deep stuff? Keep your seatbelts on. This is important. I encourage you to really think these things through with me and to study this on your own as you go home. So then we find in Hebrews, we're going to look at Hebrews 7 and we're going to look at 1 through 3. It says, this Melchizedek was king of Salem or Jerusalem and he was priest of God most high. He was king and priest, the only person There was ever both. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and he blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Did you know that the biblical principle is that you only tithe to the Lord? Something about Melchizedek resonated deeply inside of Abraham that he knew who he was and he knew what he was starting and he knew to give the tenth of the plunder to the king of Salem, to the king of righteousness. So it says in verse two, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. See, the Bible is defining this for us. It means king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. He didn't end. Do you know why the priesthood changes over and over and over throughout the course of history? They die. Just like you and me. We kick the bucket. We die. Melchizedek doesn't have an end, neither does Jesus. There's this parallel that's going on. The only two figures in all of the Bible that are described as king and priest. So look at this, Hebrews 7, 17. Just go down a couple verses. For it is declared you are priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the writer of Hebrews is describing that Jesus began to fulfill everything about Melchizedek, king and priest. So Melchizedek, it means king and priest. It comes from two Hebrew words. The first one is Melchi, and the second is Zadok. Melchi comes from Malek or Melech, which means to rule or reign as king. And Zadok means righteousness and comes from Sadat, to make right or to justify. Put them together and it literally means king and priest. 
pretty powerful. So remember that there are 12 tribes of Israel. The only tribe that could be a priest after those 12 tribes of Israel, pop quiz, anybody know who it was? Levi. So Levi is the only tribe that could actually have priests come out of it. The only tribe that could be a priest was the descendants of Aaron, which is the tribe of Levi. No other tribe could be a priest. But before there was ever a king or a priest in Israel, before there was 12 tribes, before there was any of the patriarchs, Melchizedek shows up on the scene and he's king and priest. God had already stepped foot on earth to establish his purposes before even the first covenant ever began. Melchizedek is believed by many to be the pre-covenant appearing of the Messiah on earth. Think of it as a kickoff to God's ultimate field goal of salvation. Written from the beginning to the end of the Bible that you hold in your hand is the story of God's mercy that is written on these pages to bring us life and understanding. Melchizedek is believed to be the pre-covenant appearing of Messiah It's God establishing his purpose of kingship and priesthood on earth so it would be recognized in the covenant he was to release in short order through the coming Messiah, the king and priest, eternal Jesus Christ. So convinced was Abraham Melchizedek's heavenly authority that he even tithed to him a tenth of all of his victory plunder. After Melchizedek blessed Abraham, the story of the first covenant began. This is where God separated in mankind the king and the priest. Because these patriarchs started to be born. No man could carry the priesthood and the kingship at the same time in the old covenant until the chosen one was to arrive. This way, only one could fulfill the role again, and we would recognize him as God's ultimate deliverance of mankind from the clutches of Satan. Why can't we have more people than just Jesus be king and priest? Because we needed a way to recognize that he was who he said he was. And if everybody's king and priest, then everybody could have been the Messiah. But there's only one who can be the Messiah. And I'm going to show you how that all ties together in a few minutes. You see, throughout the first covenant, priesthood and kingship was never placed on the same person. In fact, when Saul took it upon himself to sacrifice to the Lord in 1 Samuel 14, you might remember this story, he actually took the sacrifice because he was losing and he needed to petition the Lord, so he told the people to bring sacrifices so that he could sacrifice, and God did not hear him, and they lost the battle because the king was never to bring the sacrifice that the priest was designated for. And the king was never put in position without the priest anointing him. So these two offices worked hand in hand, but never on the same person until our Messiah. You can think of it as an original separation of church and state. God did not want the two to mix until it was time to be fulfilled by his one and only begotten son. Since it's God's foundation, it had to be established by his own work, not the work of men. Remember his foundation is what? righteousness and justice. And God is always working in both to bring his glory to the earth. So I want to look at the difference between the priest and the king for a couple minutes. Would you join me in that? We're going to look at point number one today, the priest. Let's talk about the priest for just a second, okay? So the priest is going to be from the tribe of Levi, because Levi was the descendant of who? Aaron. So Aaron is the brother of who? Moses. So Moses was the one who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. His brother was Aaron, and Aaron, his descendants were Levi, and that was the the lineage that God chose to bring the sacrifices and the ministry in the temple to. 
So the 12 tribes are these, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Manasseh, Ephraim, and Benjamin. The only tribe that could be a priest was the descendants of Moses' brother Aaron, which is the tribe of Levi. No other tribe could be a priest, but this man Melchizedek was described as priest before Levi was ever born. In fact, the Bible says, and we didn't read the scripture, but just as a point of, of mention, is that Levi actually even tithed to Melchizedek because he tied through Abraham, who was his descendant or, or his predecessor. Isn't that interesting how this lineage is blessing the Lord in the proper order? God had this set up supernaturally, so powerful. Melchizedek was not part of any of the tribes, yet Genesis describes him as a priest. How is that possible? Because God establishes the priesthood. Did you hear me today? God establishes the priesthood. God calls whom he will. And God wanted to establish his authority in the way he wanted to establish it. It wasn't established through Levi's line. That was later. The priesthood represents the reconciliation between God and man. God had to start the story. God had to prepare the way. God had to build that first bridge. The priesthood represents God providing the way to salvation. Melchizedek is actually a pre-picture of God building a bridge to you and me so that we could sit in a church 2,000 years later, well, at this point, 4,000 years later, because that was in Abraham's time, and actually receive the grace of God when God's justice required our eternal punishment. So God built this bridge. He's been building it for thousands of years so that you and I could sit here today. Wow. Wow. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a flannel graph on this. This is real stuff. God did this for you. God established the priesthood even before he established the Levites who were the priests. Melchizedek was priest of Salem or Jerusalem. Salem meaning peace. So get this. God creates a priesthood that creates peace. What do you describe when you get saved? How do you describe what your heart feels like? Peace. All of a sudden your conscience no longer grips your heart to the point where it debilitates you. No longer does your sin have any say. No longer does Satan have any accusation against you because the priesthood, because the goodness of Jesus, because the righteousness of God has made your heart reconciled with him. And it creates peace. He's the king of peace. Isn't that good? He was the restorer and the maintainer of peace between God and man. So that's the priest. So let's look at the king. So what's the difference with the king? This is really interesting. So remember, God was to be the king of Israel. God wanted to be the king of his people. And for all of these years, we have gotten this thing wrong. We want an earthly king. We want a man to look up to. We want somebody who's going to lead us because it's actually a little bit intimidating to serve the author and the finisher of our faith. And so the Israelites wanted to be just like all the other nations of the world. And they cried out to Samuel, who was a, a priest. They cried out to Samuel, who was a priest, and said, give us a king. And so Samuel brought the request to God, and God said, I'm their king. Why do they want a king? The kingship is already taken care of. But the people were determined. The people were determined they wanted it their way. The people were stubborn. The people wanted a man to serve. They wanted somebody they could twist, somebody that they could change when they wanted the rules to be different. They didn't want the standard of God. 
because the standard of God never changes because the foundation of God's throne is righteousness. Which if righteousness is removed, then justice must be administered. And as people, the Israelites said, we don't want a king that's going to hold our feet to the fire. We don't want a king that's going to hold us accountable to the word. We want a king who we can twist whenever we don't like what he's doing. And so they cried out for a king and man wanted this earthly king. Saul was chosen by God as a concession. Did you know that? God never wanted Saul to be the first king of Israel. He never wanted Israel to have a king at all. He wanted to be Israel's king. Saul was chosen by God as a concession to the people, but God made clear he was not pleased to give them a king other than himself. But then God brought his answer and continued his story because King David was the replacement to Saul when Saul turned his back on God. So Saul started to rebel. Are you still with me? I'm digging into some places, but I believe this is powerful. If you get 10% of this, it's still going to rock your world. So Saul is rebelling, and he's sinning, and he's afraid of people, which means that his power is under um, tyranny. He's doing all kinds of wild, crazy things because he's got power, but he doesn't have character. And behind his back, God tells Samuel to go to the house of Jesse and to find the next king of Israel. And you know the story. He goes through all the brothers and none of them are the right brother because Samuel was looking at the appearance on the outside and God said, no, I'm looking for someone else. I'm looking, in essence, later it describes David as a man after my own heart. I'm looking for somebody who's seeking me. And here comes this little shepherd boy into the house. I don't know how old he was, but Samuel pours the horn of oil over this young man anointing him as the next king. He spends the next decades of his life running from Saul because the kingship was going to be transferred to David. And something about David, Saul knew it. And at just the right moment, God brought David into the kingship of Israel. King David was the replacement to Saul when Saul turned his back on God. David was the tri- of the tribe of Judah. Okay, so this is an interesting thing. Does anybody know what the name Judah means? The name Judah means I will praise the Lord. Not I will rule my own way. I will praise the Lord. David is of the tribe of Judah. Judah was born from Leah, who was unloved by her husband. She went through several sons and named them all of these things that meant maybe my husband will love me. Well, finally she goes, I'm fed up with it all. He's not going to love me. I'm going to praise the Lord anyway. And that's Judah's name. And so the lineage of Judah brought out David, and David's lineage is, I will praise the Lord. I will bring glory to God. I will establish the throne of God through that righteousness and justice because his name is more powerful, because his goodness is more powerful, because his righteousness and his, I will praise the Lord. And and they found him out in the fields worshiping the Lord, and they found him in the courts of Saul praising the Lord, and they found him seeking after God. And making sure who was king? God. And so God slipped David into the kingship. David was of the tribe of Judah, a name meaning I will praise the Lord. 
God had anointed David, a young man of great devotion by the priest Samuel, the priesthood, God's righteousness was to establish the new king. In other words, God was going to choose this time through his priesthood in order to reestablish his divine order. He blessed David and scripture shares over and over that God would bless him and never let the kingship of Israel leave his lineage. So here's the interesting thing. Here's this little shepherd boy. He's anointed by Samuel, who is the priest, to become king. And then God's prophetic word over David was that the kingship of Israel will never leave your line. And we think natural kings. You read the descendants of David, and there were some colorful characters. There were some righteous kings, and there were some not-so-righteous kings. So what was the scripture foretelling? We recognize that the descendants of David did not always follow God. When you trace the begats in the beginning of the New Testament, you realize that the Messiah was born from the lineage of David. Jesus was born through the line of David. Who established David's kingship? Wasn't man. It was God. So see how God is restoring righteousness and justice as the foundations of his throne. That's why the begats are in there, by the way, is so that we can see the authenticity of the work of God throughout the ages. You realize that the Messiah was born from the lineage of David of the tribe of Judah. Israel's eternal king was born of the tribe of Judah, but not the priestly line of Levi. Uh-oh, we have a disparity. Because the priest has to come from the line of Levi, but the king comes now from the line of Judah. So we have a king and a priest that are out of two different tribes. How do we reconcile this? The next thing under this is, let's see how God reconciles the king and the priest. The king and the priest Messiah. Because we recognize that the first king and priest was Melchizedek, the second king and priest was Jesus, but how did God do it? How did God tie that ministry back together? How did God take it from two different tribes and knit it back into one so that it could be revealing the new covenant that we live in? How is the kingship and the priesthood once again restored to one man? Remember, God's throne is established on the foundation of righteousness and justice by the priest and the king. It was a title fit only for the great high priest. God reconciled his priesthood and his kingship. The Messiah, Jesus, was born into the line of David, or the tribe of Judah, fulfilling Psalm 110. Remember what Psalm 110 said? That he would be priest forever according to the, the line of Melchizedek, giving him God's authority to reign as king. There was one day Jesus had been living his life from a small child, and he spent time in the temple, and he enjoyed fellowshipping with the priests and the scribes, and he had this wisdom and this knowledge that was supernatural, and so, so much so that it astounded the people that were around. It actually says that as he grew, he grew in favor and in stature, he grew in stature and in favor with both God and men. So something supernatural was happening as he was growing, and about the time he reached about 30 years old, which is, interestingly, the age where men are eligible to become a priest. He's walking along the Jordan River one day, and he comes across his cousin. Anybody know who Jesus' cousin is? John the Baptist. One day, Jesus went to the Jordan River and was baptized by John. John, Jesus' cousin, was the descendant of Levi. 
How do I know he's the descendant of Levi? Because his father was a a priest. How do I know he was a priest? Because he was in the temple when Gabriel showed up and said, you're going to have a son. And he said, that can't be because we're old. And he says, you're not going to talk until the baby comes. Remember this story? He was a priest. So somehow John's lineage is out of the lineage of Levi and Jesus's is out of the lineage of Judah, king and priest coming into one. As Jesus came to the Jordan to be baptized, John tried to refuse, saying, I should be baptized by you. But look at what Jesus said. Matthew 3.15 says, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Righteousness comes from the priesthood. Justice comes from the kingly line. He already was declared the king through the tribe of Judah. Now to fulfill all righteousness, he will be baptized in the priesthood. Isn't God phenomenal? Isn't God a great storyteller? Isn't he thorough? Isn't it great that your God has such a thorough desire for you to be reconciled through his righteousness and his justice that he would make sure there's not one detail left out? John 1, 29, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. You see what John is saying right here is he's like Melchizedek. He has no beginning and he has no end. In fact, he continues on and he says, the man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to the world. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then this is key. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. You see, God had been telling his story and reconciling the kingship and the priesthood since the fall of man. His righteousness or his priesthood was confirmed at his baptism and justice or his kingship was established through his lineage. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. He must have both kingship and priesthood over his people. He must provide both justice and mercy. He must provide both authority and righteousness, right living between God and man. This is why he was the only one that could be sacrificed for our sins. He was the only one who could be just and righteous in the exact same act through the same person. He could be both judge and the sacrifice at the same moment. He could fulfill his justice and he could fulfill his mercy in one act on the cross. The judgment of God could be poured out on the sacrifice of God and he was the only one who could fulfill both things in the same act. That's why it had to be him. And that's why it couldn't be anyone else. He could be both judge and sacrifice at the same time, and this was God's plan all along. His ultimate mercy was satisfying his own justice with his own righteousness. 
Wow. What a circle of power that is for us. What a revelation of his thorough love for the people of God. It's foundational. You see why it's important for us to know these things? It's foundational. It's a confirmation. It's a fact. It's not up for debate. The word of God is so thorough that we can rest on it as solid and sure. The foundation. When you think of foundation, it is solid. Revelation 13, 8 through 9, it says, All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. We know this is coming. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, who is the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Before you were born, before you had a chance to sin, before mankind was even breathed into for the first time, God was already prepared and willing to send the righteous king and the righteous priest to stand as a substitute for you. God has been preparing for the lamb, the king, and the priest to come as a sacrifice for our sins since before the creation of the world. You were so important to God that he made a way for you to have him as king and to be forgiven from your trespasses since before you ever sinned. When Jesus went to the cross, the priesthood and the kingship were forever knit together. Because how many know that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will never die again? His justice and his mercy were provided at the same moment. The reconciliation of God and man, the upward relationship of reconciliation and forgiveness, and the lateral reign of kingship might look just a little bit like this. Would you show that picture? He's finding it. We'll get back to it. Please. So we recognize that the upward call of reconciliation with God, and we recognize that the kingship authority of God between God and man looks a little bit like the cross. They'll get that up there, but that was a sneak peek. (laughs) God reconciled God and man, and he brought his authority back to the earth. Isn't that good news, you guys? Isn't that powerful that you and I have the kingship of God on earth and the priesthood of his righteousness? John 19, 30, it says, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. The priesthood and the kingship is reestablished. The foundation of God's throne is forever declared. And my people now, whoever would call on my name, can come into my kingdom and receive salvation. Aren't you glad today? Jesus fulfilled it all. It is finished. It's complete. God's restoration of the kingship and priesthood have been forever established in Christ, foretold throughout the first covenant, now resonating ever victorious in Christ's new covenant. 
Why do, what does this mean for you and me? It means we have reconciliation with God through his righteousness. It means we have peace in his authority by his justice. This is why we are to make him our savior and our Lord. See how there's duality in all of this? Because you can have Jesus as your savior, but he's not actually your Lord. How do you know? Because when he calls on you to do something, if you say no, he's not your Lord. Justice and righteousness are the foundations of his throne. Lord and Savior. He's priest and king. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. This is why we can have confidence and peace in troubling times. This is why we can have joy in the midst of pandemics, in the midst of riots, in the midst of fires, in the midst of wild politics and the like, because we serve a king and priest who is not of this world, but reigns over all eternity. Everything else is temporary. That's why we have joy. That's why we have peace. That's why we have victory. And that's why I sing joyful songs. And that's why I have a smile on my face. And that's why I refuse to get negative about the stuff I can't change anyway. But the thing that I'm tied into is his kingship and his lordship. And he is still on his throne. Can I hear an amen? This is why we look up and this is why we look out. We're waiting for his soon return because you see the king and the priest is returning. I said the king and the priest is returning. He's returning for you. He's returning for the bride. He's returning for those who have called on his name to receive forgiveness of sins. The first time he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The second time he's like the lion of the tribe of Judah that roars with power and with authority and he will not be defeated. He has already won the victory. Can I hear an amen? His throne is established on the foundation of righteousness and justice and he has accomplished it all. And we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, and we'll end here, verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, I'm doing it right now. Encourage one another with these words. Can I hear it today, church, that you are more than a conqueror through Christ who loves you, that you have the victory of Christ on the inside of you, and it doesn't matter what you see on the news this afternoon. It doesn't matter the garbage you scroll through on Facebook. The fact remains that Jesus is on his throne today, that he's your king, and we have no reason to walk in despair. We have no reason to walk in criticism. We have no reason to walk in cynicism. In fact, if we are, we're biting on the fruit of the enemy because Jesus wants us to walk in victory and in hope and in strength. If not us, then who? Church, it's your hour. It's your moment. When the fires burn, preach the gospel. When the riots go, share the love of God. When the pandemic is crazy and we don't know when it's going to end, love somebody. Don't let the mask, don't let the politics, don't let the fear, don't let the garbage taint the priesthood and the kingship that Christ has paid for for us to walk in reconciliation with God. The only one who can give that away is you. Lord Jesus, come quickly. But in the meantime, may we walk with the hope of glory. Christ in us with the fulfillment of his goodness resonating in our life. Don't despair, church. 
rise because Christ has accomplished his work. Would you stand with me this morning? Jesus, I pray in this place right now that as we resonate, this is a deep word, but God, it's a word that's foundational, just like righteousness and justice, just like this place, Lord, of consecration before you, that we're not serving a patty cake God, we're not serving a God who, who we hope that is victorious, we know you are, you've been telling your story since the beginning of time. And God, we recognize today that our life many times doesn't reflect the victory and the power that you've given us. And so we repent right now. And we ask you, Lord, for forgiveness of a lack of faith and of doubting that you've been telling this story. And even what we're walking through right now, Jesus, you knew. You knew it was coming and you knew that there would be a group of people, a remnant perhaps, that would stand and would be victorious and would be confident. And even if life hits us hard, we're going to follow you because we believe that your word is true, that you established your throne on righteousness and on justice, and it has been fulfilled. It is finished, which means today I can walk in victory and in power. So Jesus, I'm praying across this room right now that you would touch the hearts of those right now that have been dealing with, they've been struggling with doubt. They've been struggling with how does your word relate Maybe it seems like the word has been dry and it's been distant and we don't really know how to interpret what you have done. But I thank you in this place today. Something is igniting. Something is transforming us, Lord. The recognition of your full circle revelation is igniting our hearts again. God, I pray for the fire of the Holy Spirit to move in this place right now. If you need the Holy Spirit to fill you, I want you to raise your hands as high as you can get them and say, God, right now, I want to be filled afresh. I want to be filled with boldness. I want to be filled with courage. I want cynicism burned out of my life. I want criticism and burned out of my life. I want fear and doubt burned out of my life. I want to be filled to the fullness of God right now in the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, raise up your voice and just ask him to fill you. This is between you and him. I want you, God. I don't want the counterfeits of this world. I don't want the garbage of this world to fill and taint my vessel. I want only you, only you. You're the king of my life. You're my Lord and you're my savior. You saved me from my sins, but now because of that, I want you to be the Lord supreme in every single way. When you say go, I want to say yes, Lord. When you say speak, I want to say yes, Lord. When you say silent, I want to stay silent. When you say lay your hands on the sick, I want to lay my hands on the sick. Lord, when you call me to have compassion and empathy, I want to have compassion and empathy. God, fill me with your spirit afresh again. Renew a right spirit within me. Forgive me of my sin. I don't want to take for granted the beautiful sacrifice that you made to fulfill all righteousness. You went through all those hoops so that I could be reconciled to you. Church, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if there's someone in this room within the sound of my voice or even right now at the Anthem House or maybe in your home and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or maybe he's been your savior, but maybe not necessarily your Lord. This is your moment. The Spirit of God is calling out to you right now, and he's speaking to you. I did this all for you. I did this all for you. All you have to do is receive it and make me the Lord of your life. And so if that's you, I want you to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I receive you. 
I thank you for you being who you said you are. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. Renew a right spirit within me and help me to live in these troubling times with hope because of your greatness. God, I pray that you would release a blessing and anointing over your people today. God, may they know that you love them and that you went to great lengths to rescue them and may they delight in serving you. Not even just the church. That's wonderful. They would delight in serving you. God, give us someone to share the good news with this week. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's somebody on our street. Maybe it's someone in the grocery store. But God, may we not hold this great gift to ourselves, Lord, if there was ever a time that the good news needs to be released, it's right now. And it's not tone deaf. It's not insincere. Because Lord, we desperately want to see a revival move across our land. A revival of salvation. A revival of repentance. A revival of your presence moving in our midst. And so we give you praise for that. Church, I wanted to make you aware of something as we prepare to close that we're going to be um, permitting this next Saturday. Uh, many of you have heard that uh, there's going to be a massive prayer rally in Washington, D.C. on Saturday the 26th, so next Saturday. And they're actually broadcasting that rally. There's going to be people from all over the world. There's going to be a lot of people speaking and sharing and praying. I've actually seen the itinerary. Most of it is prayer. And it is an all-day prayer meeting. Prayer, fasting, repentance. And so on Saturday, starting at 9 o'clock on the big screen, we're going to be playing that. If you want to fast that day, if you want to come down and believe God for a move of His Spirit in our nation again, I encourage you to come. You don't have to be here all day. It's going to be an all-day thing. You can come and go as you want, but if, for those that can come all day, come all day. It's going to be powerful. It's called The Return, and it's going to be broadcast, so we're going to go ahead and play that. So if you want to come, come. I just wanted to let you know about that. How many of you are glad that Jesus is firmly established on His throne today? Amen. I wonder, would you just give Him a praise today, a great big praise? Let Him know how great He is today. He's magnificent. He's awesome in power. He's awesome in glory. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. God bless you this morning. Thank you for joining us. A special thank you to those of you that give generously to this ministry. It is because of you that this ministry is possible. You can click the link in the description to give now or visit refugecity.church for more information on how you can become a part of that team. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe, you can share it with your friends, you can take a screenshot and share it on your social stories, and make sure to tag us at Refuge City Church. Thanks for listening.